I will totally spread for brains. I'm the worst. This episode of the Oral History Podcast is sponsored by the Booklist Reader, a blog offering opinion, news, and lists from the friendly book geeks at Booklist Magazine and Booklist Online. If you're an aspiring author, check out their Publishing You series, which offers excellent advice from a wide variety of industry pros. You'll find that and more at booklistreader.com or follow them on Twitter at booklistreader. Hey, Carrie, what the hell are you reading right now? Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. I am reading Ray Carson's Walk on Earth, A Stranger, which I really am enjoying. Um, And I I like historical, and I like how it's sort of a historical fiction fantasy mashup. Oh, Um, I love Ray. She's so excellent. I get to meet her, I think, soon. So that is exciting. Um, For me, at least. (laughs) And I just finished reading this book. Um, called The Master by Cressley Cole. It's a romance novel, contemporary. It's from her Game Maker series, which there's another book called The Professional, but The Master is the one I want to sit and talk about for a thousand years. It's this perfect intersection of sleaziness and wit. (laughs) just kills me. This is the Russian dude? It's got the Russian mafioso brothers. I think there's going to be three because there's three brothers. So my romance math tells me that that, there will be three books. But um, yeah, so nice. That's the master. Super good. Super dirty. Funny. Um, you know, whimsical. Of course, they're billionaires, which is always helpful. Well, Russian mob, you know, there you go. Who wouldn't want that? Anyway, so what are you reading? I uh, just finished reading Ellen Hopkins' Traffic, uh, which was excellent. It's her follow-up to Tricks, and it's really good. Um, And right now, I'm reading The Death and Life of Zebulon Finch by Daniel Krause, um, which, you know, I will probably be reading through the next podcast, frankly, because it's a big bit of an opus, but it's super good so far. So I'm excited for that as well. Yeah, and Krause tells me that um, it has, like, a really really excellent sex scene so i'm very very excited oh to see now ahead. we have to i know we have right? to yeah okay well, way to get us to read it dk okay um well so yay uh today our topic is illicit relationships and we're going to discuss how engaging in these kinds of relationships can contribute to one's overall feelings about themselves as sexual beings. And we're also going to talk about some books that tackle the subject in a variety of a variety of ways. Um, but first, we wanted to give a shout out to those who have been recommending our podcast and writing in ideas for topics. We love hearing from all of you. We love that all of you are enjoying it. Um, we love that we have more listeners than just Daniel Krause. That's super fun <laughs> for us. Um, so, and we're still collecting our Is This TMI? Um, ideas from our listeners. Um, and we got a great, our first great flash fiction piece from a listener and writer named Shayna Olmanson. Um, and it's pretty, pretty great. So yeah. Yeah. I know Shayna personally and she's wonderful and I was going to read it. And then I thought, oh, that's so weird because it's not mine, but it is a piece of flash fiction on the subject of an illicit relationship. It's, it's kind of dark and a little dirty. Um, but it's not my writing, so I'm not going to read it out loud. Uh, but we're going to put the link to it on the show notes and on the Booklist Reader site. Um, there will be a new drop-down menu under the oral history site called Is This TMI? And we'll put all the flash fiction and stories we get there as we collect them. That is the main site, www.theoralhistorypodcast.com, and it'll be on the Booklist Reader site as well. You can always send us your stories, whether they're true or flash fiction, for this segment. Um, Feedback at theoralhistorypodcast.com. Okay, so let's get on with the show. Um, for the purposes of this podcast, we thought we'd start by defining what we recognize or think of as um, an illicit relationship. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about this for a while, and I guess for me, it's a relationship that is unequal in power or unsustainable in public life. 
What do you think? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I think about of an illicit relationship, I sort of think about it in two ways. The first way, sort of the the unstable in public life way, is when um, two people are sort of on the same playing field in terms of power and status, and they both sort of have the exact same amount to lose. I guess when it comes to if something if someone finds out about this relationship, um, and the second relationship, which is one that is unequal in power, usually means means that one person has power or status over the other um, and there it's a you know so different levels of power and so the person who's sort of in the lower level um, of power has you know per, per, per potentially sort of less to lose than the person of in the higher level I guess um, if if found out and, and in cases like this I think about like teacher student relationships or an adult and uh, a, a younger person something like that um, is sort of what I'm thinking and and a lot of times those things can be criminal which is sort of a different ball game, but um, that's when I think of illicit relationships. Is that sort of where you are here? Yeah, I think that that makes sense about you know our own personal discussion and, and as well as the books we're going to talk about later. Um, unfortunately for our listeners, I really don't have any juicy stories about my illicit relationships as a youth, I, unless you count just boring garden variety cheating, which I did a fair amount of. Um, I, I've never been in one that I guess couldn't be made public. Um, I guess the only one that I think that comes close was a cheating relationship with a guy who was with a girl and we were studying abroad and the guy uh, on the trip, we also had a people on our trip that we uh, in our program that knew his girlfriend and knew they were together. And so it had to be kept quiet so it wouldn't get back to her I guess it was, but that wasn't that hard I mean I'm, well I'm and, and, uh, but. yeah I, I was gonna say and and that does I think that does constitute sort of an illicit relationship but we sort of co covered that in our cheating podcast yeah. episode um just that level of it but I do think that it's worth talking about that because that's it's unsustainable that would have been unsustainable in 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 life for you guys to be out in the open because all of the other Italian people would was it did you say you were in Italy yeah. no we were in uh, South America oh South America okay so all an the unnamed other, South American yes, country. yes all um, the other South Americans were <laughs> students were would have been looking at you like gosh what are you doing don't you know he's with someone right right and it was really to protect him I didn't really give that much of a shit but um yeah. there could have been I guess blowback of them being you know uh cold or mean to me for being a homewrecker but I guess I don't, I don't really count that. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering about you. Well, I guess I, I carry the water on this, this topic then. <laughs> I'm carrying all the water over here. Um, so yes, I have had an illicit, well, I've actually had probably two illicit relationships. Um, and then some that I would sort of say are in the gray area and, and something that's worth talking about, which is relationships that seemed very viable to me, but that maybe a family member or something would maybe not be as for. So, um, you know, either re my relationships with women or even when I initially was started dating Julio and didn't tell my very conservative Republican dad and stepmom that he was black right away. It just wasn't something that it was, you know, because I knew that there was going to end up being questions. But th those were not exactly illicit relationships either, so much as um, ones that were trickier to navigate, which I think is slightly different um, than, you know, the time that I dated my professor um, when I was in college. Um, and I think why that was an illicit relationship other than, you know, the 30 year age gap uh, was also because um, he was actively my professor at the time. So he was grading me. Okay, um, well, let, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grill you a little bit. All so, right, hit me. Oh. Let's unpack it. <laughs> so, I mean, I suppose you could speak from any of these relationships, but how are these relationships that we are calling illicit, how are they different? How is their chemistry different from other kinds of, I guess you would call above board public uh, uh, endorsed kinds of relationships? How are they, how do they feel being inside them? Um, I think I, if I was really going to think about it, I would say 
um, let, let's just sort of focus on, on dating my professor, dating this older man. Um, I think at the, the time I had done so many other things already. I had, um, sort of run a lot of the gambit of, you know, I, I was at, at that point, I was sort of at varsity level in terms of my own sexual agency. And so it, in some ways it was new, it was intriguing because it was new and sort of daring. And it, um, was, I guess some, some, something on the menu I had never tried before. Um, and also too, I think even at that point, I was so driven to the idea of, wanting people to like me or want me, that it felt a little bit like I had won something. I had won this game or I had won this, like to be chosen. And I was very chosen. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, Nancy Olean's consent in a little bit. But I think one of the things that she does really well in that book is she gets across the idea of to be a student um, and have a professor that you deeply admire really choose you in a way, um, you know, it's one thing to be a teacher's pet, but when you sort of level up beyond that, it's really amazing. It feels amazing. It, like you can have something that no one else can have that you, because, because he was an adult. Enough. Yeah. Well, was no, that, for me, it know. was because, um, because at that point I was 20 and he was, okay. you know, 50 something, but, um, but that I, I think for me, it was that I was worthy enough that he was willing to take the risk that even though I was his student and there was no, um, I mean, it was a really gray area in terms of, um, whether or not students and professors could be dating because it was, um, a, a different program. It was like an abroad program, although it was our college's abroad program. So technically he was our faculty, but, um, so it was sort of a gray area, but even still, it felt like it was a risk. And the fact that he was willing to make that risk for me felt really huge. Like it was a super big deal. So is there something about valuable or, or I guess, uh, desirable about the secrecy and deception involved in that situation? Well, I think in that way, um, I guess I would say yes, because, um, it, it sort of makes it, um, it puts you in a place. And, and I think about this in, in terms of books or other things, it puts you in this place where only you and this other person know that this is going on. And so already, I mean, anyone likes to be a secret keeper. You love to be the one person who knows something that no one else knows. My God, I love that still now, you know, <laughs> right? Like, don't you to be like, Ooh, I've got this, this one thing I'm just holding no, on to. I can't, I'm very, it, it's hard for me. I'm a big, um, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Right. But so, <laughs> so it's, I, I mean, you know, when I guess I, I like, and maybe it's because I had this legacy of carrying secrets that it felt like, you know, such a big deal. But I think there was that idea of when it's something only you and someone else knows. And then I think yeah. there's also something about being um, special to someone, feeling like, wow, you know, he's willing to risk possibly his job. Later on, I found out it was his marriage, which I didn't know he was married at the time. Um, so which in itself was like sort of horrifying to me because I was still really like a big baby feminist at the time. I mean, I, I was dating like a female cop right before I, I started going out with him. And I was super you know, just such a staunch feminist. And then here I am like being the other woman. And it was super gross when I found that out, you know, like I just was like, God, I am the worst human being. I mean, there's nothing worse than feeling like you're the other woman to someone's marriage, you know? Oh God. It was like really hard. That was so hard for me. And it just made me like sort of spiral out in this not great way, but yeah. Well, I, I like the, okay. I feel like I'm sitting here just rummaging around in your innards, but, but um, please do whatever. Bro. Okay, Walters, go. <laughs> so that I like the part you said about how like you are the only people who know about it or who can know about it. So you're both guarding the secret. And okay, this might get a little bit um, 
uh, invasive, but bear with me. So I remember in my, you know, my cheating relationship I we spoke of earlier, getting really drunk, going out dancing, um, and then taking a cab home with a bunch of other people and waiting until all the other people got dropped off so that he and I could be finally alone. And yes, we were gross people who made out in the back of a taxi, right? And so but the idea that you are the only people on earth who know about that, it's almost as if the the relationship doesn't exist unless it only exists in those moments because you can't relive it with anyone else. And you can't, I mean, I suppose that's the other question. Did you tell anybody else about this or did you only live it while it was happening? Because that's why I feel like it's so, the currency is so valuable because it only can exist when it's happening in those moments when you manipulate to be together, to be alone and to be private. Right. And well, and also to the, the hope that it can maybe happen again or the possibility of it. Um, well, a couple things. One is that um, even though I I say like, oh, well, we were the only two people in the world who knew this was going on. That was totally a lie. I mean, I had a very good friend in college who was like, wow, what's going on with you and this professor? <laughs> like in the classroom, it was obvious, you know, he would, okay. he would ask questions and then everyone would raise their hand and then he would just look at me and have me answer them constantly. Or he would say, oh, you know, I'm, most of you, I'm sure haven't read the Shakespearean canon. Well, of course, Krista has, but, and then would just go on and these like little things like these little sides like well yeah you have like just these sort of moments where and then I was living with other students at the time and he called and they were all like um your professor's on the phone I mean they all knew you know okay so there was like that part but it, it, you know it just went like a that was still fairly innocuous they didn't think like oh and then I went out to lunch with him and he had his hand on my thigh you know like they weren't thinking that, that like underneath the table, when the two of us are having lunch together, this other thing is happening. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not yeah. seeing that part. So those were moments, but I kept thinking like anytime someone's going to call shenanigans on this, but no one ever did. And I don't know if it was because we were all like, you know, posh and sophisticated London people. And this was just how things were done. I had no idea, but I was game. <laughs> I mean, until I found out like all the other parts of it, but at first I was super game and he wasn't, there was nothing attractive about him. And I think this is a really important thing when we think about illicit relationships is I think there's always this idea that it's like, you know, this, you know, there's, there's some sort of physicality that makes it, makes the relationship like some, some teacher can't resist his like haughty, you know, Catholic school looking girl, but I wasn't that at all. And he wasn't anything that was attractive at all, really, except that he was so smart. And that is such crack to me, like brains is <laughs> like, God, like I will totally spread for brains. I'm the worst, but, um, <laughs> you know, like it just was so like I just loved it all of that stuff he wasn't even he didn't even have like one nice thing about him no like, he was no. like a troll no he was totally trolly except that he would like <gasps> recite Shakespeare while he was boning me I mean it was super sexy I don't know I was I don't fucking know it was just crazy but the point is like all of it I just felt like all of it seemed so sort of yummy and secretive in this way that really made me feel chosen. And, and it wasn't anything about uh, attractiveness or anything else. And I, I do want to put a really fine point on that because I think that we have in our minds that like these things happen because like you can't help yourself with the hot girl or you can't help yourself with this. It's, it doesn't work that way. There's other, there's so many other factors in, in place, well, you know? Okay. But all right, let's clarify this, because this is the part I find super interesting. So he's an older man. He's what, 30 years older than you, yes. right? And there's something about, I mean, now that the person I live with and have sex with <laughs> is an older man, I don't think about it as much. But at that age, in my early 20s, there was something about an older man compared to men in my age group, where it seemed to me that there was something fascinating about the older man because he actually had been around long enough to say, this is really what I want. I'm not going to just take this because it's adjacent to me in the cafeteria. I, I am 
I'm very serious about what I spend my time on. At least this was the fantasy in my young brain. And I think that's brain. right. I mean, that's why okay. you, you like to feel chosen because you really do feel chosen in the way that, and it's not just the risk to his job or whatever, but it's the idea that like he had already sampled all of these wines. Now, of course, like if we're thinking about it now from this angle, all I would say is like, yeah, he'd already sampled all these wines and wanted the youngest one. I mean, who are we kidding here? Like right. that's the reality of it. But at the time, Time, I thought like, oh yeah, he already knows and, and he's gone, he's chosen me. Now he could have chosen other people and it could be too that I was susceptible to that. Maybe he did try other people. Maybe he did, you know, maybe this was something that was recurrent. Maybe there was always some teacher's pet over the course of the semester. I have no idea. You Do you know? think though, okay, then this is also possibly too invasive. I mean, did he have like a pretty decent game in the sack or was he <laughs> I, I really need to know because I, I mean well we might have like younger listeners going Ew, or we might have people like I guess I I would say like the, the same as everyone like I t- I tend to think oh. like and, and which is such a lame thing but do I think like he was like superior no 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 different I mean he wasn't like like a boy where he's like fumbling or anything else but he was fumbling in his own sort of dotting old man way you know he was shorter than me i mean just i make him sound like god like well you probably think i'm so gross no but like no there's nothing but the sort i'm just saying no, like but like all these things is like i think that he was fumbling in the way that he didn't know what to do with a younger woman a little bit too so that like he didn't know and especially because of the the unexpected level of experience that i was bringing to that game because he was like oh wait a second you have you know he didn't realized that how long I had been in that game, you know, even though I was 20, I had been, you know, I would, I was well seasoned at that point. And so I think like, even the things that I was up for, he was like, whoa, you know, like all of that stuff. So I think that, um, made him, it almost made him stumble a little, if that makes sense. Well, okay. Well, and, um, what about the prospect of being caught did that how did that factor in did that was that a positive or like did i um, want to be caught that's a really good question um i would initially say no i didn't want to be caught um no here's what i would say i didn't want to be caught until i did and the reason i think that i did want to be caught was cuz i wanted it to end like the novelty of it was done i didn't want to stay with him for the long run i mean he lived in london like what was i going to do um <laughs> as, you know i wasn't going to like leave my life you know and so right. i think at that point i i wanted it to be caught to be caught only just so that it we could be done with it. And I didn't have to make it, you know, it's like, if you could have, it's, it's the, if you could have the break of, of your boyfriend just saying, oh, we're graduating and I'm going to the Peace Corps and you're going to college, I guess we better not last. Then you want that. Cause then you don't have to really break up with them ever. That was sort right. of this is that I wanted to be caught oh, it, not in a way that would harm his, his job or cause me any problems, but in a way that it, it would, was untenable for us to continue. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, okay. Let's do, I've got a couple more questions, but let's do a kind of kitchen table realism here for our listeners. Yes, please. Where, where did these things happen? Don't listen to me, teen girls. Um, (laughs) Where where did these things happen? How, how did you uh, set them up? Um, Did, what are, give us some settings for which we can imagine this illicit relationship where did where did all this shit go down mostly (laughs) mostly my flat i mean i was living with other people but you know everyone was out and about all the time you know there was all these trips and people going to other places and and i was renting a flat with other people um and they would just be out they would go on on a weekend and they would go to stonehenge or something for the weekend or scotland (laughs) or some damn thing and i just always passed. I was always like, eh, no, that sounds lame. Like Stonehenge. I passed on Stonehenge <laughs> to bone this dude. I mean, how worthless am I? This is why. Don't listen to me, girls. If you're listening, girls, don't listen to me. Don't follow my life. Um, go to Stonehenge. Go to Stonehenge. It's so much more worth it. Like, damn, I totally missed that. Never seen Stonehenge. Um, 
So like that, you know, and it just made it easier and it was stupid. I mean, you, if you think about it, why, like, why did I never say like, let's meet at your place? Like I just didn't, you know, and how it would start. I mean, it was really sleazy. It was like, you know, it started in a, in a restaurant and, and I always think like, how do people start affairs? I always ask this, like when I've talked to you about it I was like, how does that even go? Like, I can't imagine just like sidling up to someone and starting an affair. How do you like figure out all the navigation? But then I have to think about this and it was super easy. You know, he just said, come and have, I'd like you to read some of my work. I mean, my God, could I have been more of an obvious cliche? He wanted me to read some of his work. I mean, he was just looking for like a nubile young girl who was going to adore him. And sure enough, like I fit the bill. It was kind of embarrassing and you don't realize this. This is why I can't wait to talk about, and I'm just going to jump ahead. Um, for a second, just because Nancy Olean's consent is so good and how it ca- captures this, this idea of what a girl is feeling, which is important. And like someone thinks she matters and all of these things and like she's worth it and that she's talented. Cause that was the other thing is he always made me feel really talented. Like I was the smartest person in the room that I was, I was the only one who was like worth co- having a conversation with in that room. And, um, that's addictive, that kind of feeling about it. And, um, but then you know, from the background, you start thinking about it and going, oh, well, what did he really want? You know, he was showing me his work. He wanted me to adore him. He wanted, you know, and it was super easy. So I read it and he wanted to have lunch to discuss it. And then we had another lunch and then his hand was on my thigh and there you go. You know, Bob's your uncle. (laughs) Well, okay. This is fascinating. And I, I'm so, I mean, here's where I would backpedal on the, oh, go to Stonehenge instead, girls. I feel like this tells, teaches you so much about yourself and men and the world and relationships and primarily power and control and not just power someone has over you, but power, you know, that you are seeking yourself. Um, What do you think about, like, power and control are always a huge thing, especially when we're talking about unequal relationships, we're talking about sexual assault, we're talking about sexual abuse, um, any kind of uh, emotional abuse, power and control come in, you know, that whole power and control wheel. Right. And, <laughs> which and you probably yes, have seen. Course. Like you um, and I are both, like we both worked in sexual violence for a long time. I mean, of course we know that. So we'll put that up in the show notes. Yeah. The power and the control yes, wheel. Exactly. Um, but so think in, in those terms, talk a little bit about that. Like, who had the power in that relationship? Was it always you? Was it always him? Did you pass it back and forth? You know, How that's did it a, it's a really good question. I think that um, I would have said that he had it as, until he asked me out. Like, I think I did really sort of worship him until he opened the door. And then I think that it all belonged to me in some ways because I was the one who was game for it. You know, if I had said no, that would have been, I would have just been on my merry way and gone back to dating my cop, you know, but instead, (laughs) right, like my cute lesbian cop, she's so cute. I can't believe I threw her over for this, this dude. Um, God, I'm the worst. Really, it's embarrassing. Um, But. But the point is, like, I think that I, it, like, it was easy for me. And again, like, be, and I think even at that point, I understood that dick is abundant and of low value. And so that being something that I was like, this is not a big deal. And, you know, so I think as soon as that door opened, I realized how much power I did have in that relationship. Um But again, what's interesting here to me and what's interesting a lot of times when I read books that involve uh, teacher-student relationships is the issue of consent. Now, I was 20, so like technically I was definitely consenting. I was of of consenting age, you know, 17 in, in Illinois is a consenting age. But you do have to wonder like at a certain point, like how much manipulation or coercion is happening here. And like if, if I slid this down, 
you know, four years and I was 16, would it look different with a high school teacher? Like, would this look, you know, all of these things. And it really does, you know, four years makes a really big difference. But even then I would think like anyone on the outside of this, if someone told me, oh, I had a relationship with my professor, my active professor, when he was 30 years older than me, I would probably say like, this feels like dubious consent, you know, like he had control of your grades. Although even at that point, like I didn't care because I was about to graduate. I graduated early and I didn't think I was like, good luck. I mean, I didn't feel like he would ever use my grades to manipulate me. If anything, like I'm sure I got a way better grade in that class than I deserved, but I didn't, (laughs) you know, like I didn't think that that was part of the dynamic, although I think it could have been, you know, I mean, and maybe it is in, in other relationships with teachers and students. I don't know, but I think... Well, I think that power, that's... I mean, it's interesting how, you know, you once you find out that he, you have something this person wants, for a moment, the person that we look at as vulnerable does hold a lot of power in a, in a creepy way. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, um, and, but it, it really depends on your ability to... Uh, to to say no or to reject it or to fight it off and the younger you get i think the lower your capacity for those things is so at 20 in london traveling on your own you have a lot more capacity to say no to something especially cuz you if you're out of your normal milieu you know your peer group you're not surrounded by uh, your regular settings, there's something about that setting that also feels like it doesn't count, I guess. Um, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I also think, um, at, at also at 20, like presumably, well, at least for me, I had had so much more experience at that point, you know, that I had, um, all of those different things had already happened to me. There were, was so many other things that had already happened to me that this didn't feel, um, coercive or non-consensual or any of the things that it might've felt like if I were 15 and engaged in this relationship. And then, and yet I I would say to you, Carrie, even though I absolutely would recognize a 15 year old in this relationship, um, that it would not be consensual, that it would be all kinds of problems and everything else. I would say to you, I have talked to women who have said that they've been in relationships with older men as young girls like that, as 15 or 16 year old girls, and who have felt that they were consenting. Even now, I mean, the women I know who are, have been in that relationship, who were in that relationship are, and now are in their 30, 30s said, oh yeah, no, I was consenting. And it's really fascinating because I think it's something super interesting to unpack to start saying like, well, okay, do you really feel like you were, how much control was he exercising in this? Um, and, and I think one of the really cool things about the uh, YA books that have dealt with this issue, and I'm thinking about like drowning instinct or consent or even boy toy is a lot of these things have this sort of ingrained notion from the victim's point of view that they are 100% on board consenting to it. Yeah, I think that's the thing that makes everyone really uncomfortable because we know that age 18 is very arbitrary to decide we're all of age at age 18 is kind of ridiculous. I mean, you know, I know a lot of young men at age 22, their bodies are still growing, their minds haven't developed yet. So to say that they're an adult at 18 is, you know, arbitrary. Same with, you know, you could say a girl could have the mental capacity of, you know, an adult decision maker at 15. But unfortunately, we can't let that line be wavy. We have to have it be hard and bright because legally we would have, you know, a soup sandwich on our hands in terms of dealing with kids who are actually being exploited and and being manipulated and and whatnot. And so when I hear those stories, I don't think, oh, they're duped. I just think 18 is the line we've decided to draw. It doesn't mean that everyone is magically of, you know, their own uh, <laughs> sailing their own boat, yeah, so to speak. They, they're completely magically. in control of their own sexual agency or anything else. No, sure. I think, it, and it, for every single person, it depends. I mean, I would say at 20, for sure, I was mine. But again, 
you know, I was sexually assaulted at six. So, you know, I had a long legacy before then that before I got to that place and tons of other things had already happened to me. So, you know, I have, I have one more question for you and then we should probably switch over to books. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, I, this is an interesting one. Um, so my own, you know, wan experience with, uh, illicit relationships, uh, the guy was in a long-term relationship with his girlfriend. I had just gotten out of a very long, difficult long-term relationship. We're both in college, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that both to each other, we were both so different from our, you know, established partners or whatever, that there was something about novelty. And you said that at the beginning, this is about something new, um, I mean, I had never, would never have considered this guy. I actually did not approach him. I didn't start the cheating, the making out. That was all him. So let the record show. But what you have, there's a really good question. How you look versus who you are. Like, what does it say about you differently being in this relationship? Because it's not about the public consuming it because they can't. Right. It's not about status. Um, how, talk a little bit about how it's different being in this hidden zone where others' opinions of it are not a part of the interior world that you're sharing with this person. It's really interesting because I also think that it gets to sort of the core of if we were in sort of a less sexually repressed world, right, in culture, say, um, what would we really, really want if you were allowed to do or ask for or see or date or lick whoever you wanted, <laughs> right? Who would that be? Right. And it's right. <laughs> yes. Lenny Kravitz. Tom Hardy. Lenny. <laughs> J-Lo. Maybe J-Lo. Yes, Maybe J-Lo. Come on. Um, but anyway, but the idea of if, if all of these social constructs weren't on us, what would we really want? And what would we, what are we really drawn to? And all of those things. And I think it's super interesting to start asking people because it has a little bit to do with fantasy life. Like, what do you imagine? What could you do? And are you more willing? Like, you know, if, if you're seeing someone on the down low, for example, right. And they say, Oh, can I tie you up? You know, are you more willing to do that? Because you've always wondered what that was like, and this is never going to come back to you because this person is, is your secret and they're they're That's never going to come out. So I always imagine, you know, a lot of times when it comes out that there are these secret affairs and it turns out that they're super kinky and everything else. I always think, well, is that just because these people have this fantasy life and they can't, they feel embarrassed about having that fantasy life in, in any kind of public way. And so, or even with their spouse. And so they have to do it in this other way. Right. So I think it, yeah. it it's a really interesting thing about, you know, the idea of novelty is not only like the person you're with, whether they're older or a different sex or a different race or whatever, you, you know, might be interesting to you. But it's it's not just the, the novelty of that, but it's the novelty of what you would be willing to do, what you're interested in, where you would be, you know, like, you know, I don't know that I, if I was just dating a, a regular person, you know, and was at a restaurant with friends, if I would let them put my, their hand under the table and like, you know, finger me under the table while we're at a, a, you know, a restaurant full of people, but in this sort of clandestine way of, or the secret way when this happens, like, are you more willing to have that happen? Because all of this is secret anyway, you know? And so I think it's right. a, it's an interesting question to ask because, Everything about sort of a secret or an illicit relationship also opens the door to all of these other possible fantasies that you can have. And it, it just, I think, speaks so much to the idea that if if we were more honest about those things, that illicit relationships wouldn't need to exist. If we were allowed right. to be, and I'm not talking about like people who have freaky pedophile fetishes or those kind of things, but just normal things that you might be interested 
interested in, or, you know, maybe that are slightly kinky, but aren't that kinky, you know, whatever that is, does that, you know, does that allow, do less illicit relationships happen if, you know, you could overtly say, Hey, I'm kind of into the idea of like, you know, BDSM or whatever it is, you know? Well, the, the counter to that is if we could all just be open about our crazy fantasies about Tom Hardy and licking Jason Statham's bald head, just for an example, like if we could be that way, I still don't think that would stop illicit relationships because I think that the if you're with somebody, they have the whole context of you and kind of the fun part of being with someone who doesn't know you as you are situated in this world is that 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 part of it, your fantasy doesn't seem as crazy and weird and off brand or off message. It's it's like what as far as you're concerned, you know, they don't know anything. And so I think there's a, a kind of freedom in that that it's, it's just never going to stop it. Oh, because... see, that's interesting to me. Like, don't you think, I mean, you have now been in, in a relationship with someone for a long time, as, as have I. Don't you think that um, you could basically bring anything to your game with Adrian right now and he'd be like, sure, okay, you know? Yeah, I do. But at the same time, like, there is a pleasure in having those things solitarily. And I think that he is the same way. I mean, there, you, there's, they're just not things that you slop around the hog trough, this information. It's really private, you know, which is why I think it's really, it's very embarrassing in a lot of respects to write stories about how you think the world is. It's like showing people your kind of fantasy life in a way. They don't realize that's what they're consuming, but they are. And so... You know, I don't know. Like, I I don't feel like there would be any repercussions. He wouldn't, like, throw me out of the house with my suitcase on the curb. But it just that I think there's something that's sort of killed when you do talk about it openly and in a really probably, you know, sex positive uh, life coach kind of respect. Oh, but that's not how you do it anyway. No, like I don't say, know. Like, you know, if someone says like, get out the video camera, you're not having a sex positive conversation about it. You're like in the moment you go, okay, you know, that's how right. it works. I mean, right. Well, and I wouldn't even be at this point, like, and Adrian has said this to me too, nothing you do will ever surprise me. Well, even if you do something shocking, I won't be surprised by it. Like, and I, and I think that's, you know, why people cheat in a lot of respects, because of the search for novelty, which I feel kind of um, neutral towards. Like, it, I feel like it's very understandable that search for novelty, there are people that have a greater need for that. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not one of them because I'm a fucking boring bump on the log of a lady. But no, like, I think that, you know, that's not true. You're the least boring person I know. Um, I think it's because you are partnered with someone who you two have figured each other out and you both are pretty open to whatever, you know, your own stuff is and that you're both kind of bringing your game most of the time. So I think that's probably why it seems less of a, an option for you or something that you would be that intrigued with is because I don't think, again, as, it, as you even just said, if anything that you pr- propositioned Adrian with, he would probably just shrug and go, okay, if that's, that's what true. you want. You Although know. this week, I feel that neither of us are bringing our A games. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Of- he can go soak his head this week because I'm very <laughs> menstrual. Okay, let's talk about the books. Yes. How about? Should yes, we do that? let's move on. You want to go the first? Um, I will just only because I've talked about consent so much. So Nancy Olean wrote this great book called Consent, which is actually not coming out until the first week of November. But I think our podcast will probably be out by the time it comes out. Um, it is excellent. Um, one of the things I loved about this book, um, not only is, uh, the very, very layered and nuanced ways that the girl was thinking about her relationship with her teacher. So the girl's name is B, um, and she has a complex family situation. Um, but not only the the way that she was thinking about her teacher and how she really felt chosen and picked and wonderful, um, 
but you really sort of were taken along on the journey. Um, her teacher's name is Dane and he's younger. So he's like just, you know, just gotten his master's. He's Um, not a troll. No, he's not a troll (laughs) at all. Um, I don't remember if he's dreamy or not, but again, I think that's irrelevant. Um, uh, I think that what's interesting about this is that she feels really chosen by him. She is a pianist, um, and she's, uh, an excellent piano player, but she cannot uh, practice at home because of this complicated situation with her mom and her mom passing away and that the piano is not allowed in their house and all this other stuff or, or piano playing is not allowed in their house. And, um, he really takes her under his wing in this way and sees how talented she is and, and wants to sort of foster that talent, which has all the sort of perfect makings of a great, illicit relationship because here's someone who has decided you're special when you yourself have feel fairly unspecial, which I think is important to know. Um, even in my relationship with my professor, if someone told me that I was smart or special or worth something, it still made a difference to me. And I think in, in consent, um, she really nails that feeling of wanting to be, um, extraordinary to someone or worth something to someone. Um, and she does it in this way that you buy into this relationship. And, and and one of the things I love about illicit relationships in YA is sometimes you get to that uncomfortable place where you're actually rooting for this couple, even though you know it's a terrible idea and it's kind of gross and everything else. And Nancy manages to sort of masterfully get that point where you think, well, because partially because she has she drops out of the teacher's class immediately after they start their little affair she drops out after that immediately he removes himself completely from like teaching her band she's got this little foursome band and 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 not even a band it's like a mini orchestra um and uh he removes himself so they're like doing all the right things to actually have a viable future together and so there's that moment when you as the reader have dropped into that world and think, yes, yes, they can make this work. Even though the back of your head is going, this is a terrible idea. This is never <laughs> going to work. You know, there's still, she does a really nice job of doing that. And and what the other part, perfect part of this book is that um, uh, Nancy's son is a, a is a Juilliard Juilliard pianist and uh, how she does music, how she deals with music in this book is perfect. Um, And you can see that she and her son, she probably had her son read a lot of it or help her with it, or she has her own musical life because the way that the role that music plays in this book is really lovely. So um, I highly recommend consent when it comes out. Um, This also, I know you're going to be bugged by this, but it I had the same thing when I read your book, Other Broken Things, which comes out in January. Yeah. Yep. Where I'm not supposed to be rooting for Natalie to get together with this dude who's much older and trying to be her sponsor and she needs to get sober. But you made me want her to get what she wanted, which was the absolute wrong thing. Like I'm sitting there wanting this on her behalf going, oh my God, but you can't have that. You're a teenager. You you need to be sensible. But yet in that story, I'm sitting there feeling it alongside of her, feeling this, this great pull to this solution to all of her problems, which she's decided to tack onto this older man who knows much better that he shouldn't be doing this, but you know is pulled into it regardless um so other broken things yes thanks very very thanks. juicy um <laughs> and, and profanity laced you know so and profanity laced I yes i love that book it's it's delicious um okay my first book would be um a book i recently reread called girl by blake nelson that it's book the, is incredible it's so good it's quite a few years old um and it's i read it many years ago i just reread it i love the kind of uh momentum that the prose has she's it's very um stream of consciousness narrative although i hate stream of consciousness it's very off the top of her head she's summarizing 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 there's not a lot of scenes it's uh, completely this is what it means 
for voice, I guess. When I read girl, I think, there you go. There's an example of voice, straight, raw, unadulterated young adult voice. Um, and I, I absolutely love it. It's the greatest book ever. If you haven't read it, then um, I don't know what's wrong with you. But anyway, in this story, there's this girl named Andrea or Andrea. I don't know how. They, they, uh, Andrea. I think it's Andrea. Andrea. Yeah. Whatever. And um, she has this affair, I guess. She's like 16, I believe, when the book starts, or 15, with this older guy named Todd Sparrow, who's in his 20s. And so it's clearly not by the legal definition allowed, right? But she never thinks for one minute, oh, he's older, gross, or ooh, there's where the law, what the law has to say about my attraction to this Todd Sparrow. Um, she's completely in love with him. Uh, doesn't have a lot of control about when she sees him because he's in a band and he's always traveling around in his van. Um, and they have this kind of relationship that, it, I mean, it's illegal, A, and B, there's really no space for it. She can never bring Todd Sparrow back to her house in the suburbs. And he doesn't have a place of his own. A lot of, in fact, the, the relationship happens in the apartment of one of his female friends and she has to like go out and do errands and then they use her bed so it's just really sleazy <laughs> and, and it happens like i think in the back of his van once after a show like the band's van God, is it, and, doesn't it happen once it gets the barn or in the barn there's some like barn hoedown or something yes God. yes and then um i think they also outside in a park at night and so it's very much they have to live in these sort of interstitial zones where nobody can see them but she doesn't ever give up hope that that's not going to work like she she still is in love with him and it, she never sees how not viable it is it's so so cool so if you haven't read girl by blake nelson i think you need to put it on your list just stylistically i think it's really cool and also um just the the romance in it is so 100% heterosexual girl. I, I think it, you'll see yourself in that if you're a heterosexual girl. Um, okay. I, I did like that book a lot too. Um, and they also made a movie out of it. And I can't remember who plays the Todd Sparrow character, but I remember oh thinking like that's, it, it was like Skeet Ulrich, but it wasn't him. Oh, gross. <laughs> I've never seen that. I don't want to ruin it. No, I'm it's just, not him, but it's someone who looks just like him, but I'm terrible that way. Cause I always think white guys look alike. So it's probably not even anywhere close to Skeet Ulrich, but it's something like that. Ugh, barf. Um, okay. Okay. So, um, my next book, which I actually think falls in the category of, um, troubling books that you sort of root for, um, and, and goes along with, uh, Tabitha Suzuma's, uh, forbidden and Kate Avalon's flawed is, uh, Kate Browning's How We Fall, which is about two first cousins who are in a relationship. And I, you know, first of all, Kate does romance really well. Um, there is, there's not, it's sort of a nice, really thriller element to this too, but she just writes romance and sexiness in this really sort of delicious way. That's great. And, um, so that is hot in itself. And then at the <laughs> same time, you're the whole time going, ew, your first cousins, like, isn't that going to lead to hemophilia and all these other things that you wonder about? <laughs> Cause that's what I think. Um, like I know my French revolution history. Um, but anyway, so in how we fall, it's about Jackie and her cousin, Marcus. And, um, the, the thing about this that I really loved about this book, other than, you know, how sexy it is, was that in the end, they sort of end up with a possible relationship. It's sort of viable for them. Like they, um, which I was, was so unexpected for me. I know you said that you've read now a few other books that do this, but I was so certain it was going to have sort of the Tabitha Suzuma forbidden, like there's no way that this is viable. And anyone who hasn't read, uh, forbidden, it's about a brother and sister romance, um, or a brother and sister who sort of fall in love with each other. And it's really well-crafted. Um, but, uh, in, in Kate's book, 
I, so I, the whole time I'm just thinking this is going to end badly, that this must end badly. And it really doesn't, which I'm sorry if that's spoilers for anyone, but anyone who's looking for, you know, something that you are, you know, are sort of pleased with. <laughs> that's how I ended up feeling like that. I was like, oh, this is going to be, all, there's going to be all these problems. But there, it does sort of land on like, there's a possibility you could, there are certain states where you can marry your first cousin and, and this may work. And you sort of uh, that I, I sort of love the idea that I felt so uncomfortable about that. Yeah. If you know what I mean, well, that I was like, oh God, you mean this could be a real thing? And then I was excited and then also felt a little gross about the whole thing because I started thinking about my cousins and then I thought, God, no. Uh, yeah, that that's not a helpful place to, to go. But there are two other books that do that. Um, How I Live Now has a cousin relationship. I don't know how close the cousins are by Meg Rossoff. And then um, Searching for Caleb by Ann Tyler oh, yes, features yes. two cousins. And that actually has one of my favorite sex scenes of all time or romance scenes or pre-sex scenes. It's so gorgeous. Um, and But that is also looked down on in Searching for Caleb because the family is so tight-knit. They're just like, oh, we need to get new blood in here. You know, so. Oh, see, there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. God, the show notes are going to be long for this thing. I know. Okay. Um, my next book is Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope oh, Perez. What a beautiful book that is. I know. It's a beautiful book. Beautiful book. Um, and if you like historical fiction and you like YA and you like romance and you just like reading gorgeous sentences, this is the book for you. Um, in this book, the relationship we're talking about is between a guy named Wash and a girl named Naomi. And Wash is a black kid from a certain part of the town in Texas. And Naomi is a um, Mexican-American girl who's been adopted by her dead mother's husband, who's a white guy. And he has um, had children that are twins um, Naomi's father is not this white guy. It's some other dude that died a long time ago and or isn't in the picture. I can't remember. But anyway, so they have this relationship um, which has to be hidden because Naomi is trying to um, kind of take care of her cousins, but then also she can't really navigate the white world her stepfather expects her to be in. And Wash helps her do things like get groceries because she can't get groceries at the white people's store because she's Mexican. Um, and, but then her stepfather doesn't want her going to the store that the black people go to that Wash suggests she goes to. Um, and so anyway, they have this relationship, which is also based on caring for the younger two twin siblings. And the the, fa the stepfather's very disapproving of all of that. And he's also uh, sexually abusive of Naomi and has been for a while. And she doesn't, she wants to get away from that, obviously. Um, but she doesn't want to abandon her brother and sister. And so her moments with Wash are completely stolen. They They kind of exist out of the time that the two of them live in, which is that neither can they be having any sort of relationship, but there's really no space for a black boy and a Mexican girl. There's no precedent. And even Wash is trying to like think, well, maybe if we got, you know, to Mexico and we got far, far away from here, maybe it would be okay. And the whole time you're reading it, you're thinking, that's never going to happen, buddy. <laughs> like there's really no public space for them in the time that they're living in, in the early thirties. And so um, it's so beautiful because the the place that they have to inhabit is, you know, it, you're sitting there from the future just hurting for them I know, because right. there's no space for right. it. Like and the up against the tree thing when you're like just that moment where the two of them are up against that tree and I was like, oh God. And then you just know there's just no options anywhere. Right. Yeah. And and he's he's kind of a ladies man. He's sort of a sweetheart and a flirt and it's just, it's such a good book on so many different levels. And um, 
out of darkness. So that book is, it it. is excellent. Um, and heartbreaking too. So, you know, all the things that I love in books. Um, and uh, speaking of both excellent and heartbreaking books, um, my final book is the sacred lies of Minnow Bly by Steph Oaks, Stephanie Oaks. Um, this is my pick. I have long said since all the, the beginning of this year, I've said that this is my pick for what I would call the, my, the Krista Morris pick of the year. I love, love <laughs> this book. Um, I, I have so many wonderful things to say about this book. Um, it's extraordinary. It's about a girl whose family, whose very poor family has been sort of duped into heading up to the mountains with several other families to be part of this cult. And um, the the way that the structure of the story is really interesting because um, it's sort of told through uh, what's now happened is that the cult has been completely burned down and the leader of the cult, whose name was Kevin, and the... um, has been killed. And this girl, Minnow, is in protective custody because they, that, because they think that she had something to do with it, even though she has no hands. Um, and so how it's structured is that she's telling her story to an FBI agent, um, who is trying to help her through, uh, offer her immunity and help her through sort of telling this tale. Um, and so it's it's this back and forth narrative. Um, it's extraordinary. The writing is beautiful, um, and the particular illicit relationship in this is between Minnow and Jude. Um, and Jude is a black guy who lives in the mountains also with his family it's separately. Um, and the issue isn't that he's black. It, it's actually, um, that he's not part of this cult. Um, so the, um, the illicitness of this relationship has much more to do with, has less to do with his race and much more to do with, um, the fact that Minnow is sneaking out to see the outside world. The, the cult is very, very insular. Um, the head, of the cult marries several of the young girls and all the sleazy things that happen and gross things that happen around that. It's an incredibly difficult book. Um, but these moments between Minnow and Jude are sort of wonderful because um, Minnow had gone for, you know, she was fairly young when she headed up to the mountains. And so in in this strange way, Jude is o- opening up the world to her, even though he is in the mountains too and, and sort of homeschooling his sister. And it's, you know, it's like very strange in this way, but they become these kindred spirits. Um, and what ultimately happens is super heartbreaking. Um, between the two of them, but the relationship itself, um, their moments together are some of the best I've ever read on page. They're just excellent. So it's extraordinary. This book, I highly recommend it. Sneaking out is really the best. It's really well, the best especially ever. when you're sneaking out of a cult of crazies. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Jesus, seriously. Yeah. Um, okay. The last book then, uh, of our show will be Still Waters by Ash Parsons, which I really, really love this book. Um, and it's kind of a thriller and like psychological thriller. And it's narrated by this guy named Jason, who's very much motivated by the prospect of getting money so he can get he and his little sister away from his abusive father. And they live in really dire circumstances financially. They don't have a lot of choices. And so he's trying to get them out and get away from him and get them to a better life. And he gets caught up with this rich guy who goes to school with him, who makes this proposition that he, um, hang out with him and he'll pay him to hang with his crowd because he's got this other separate agenda. And so Jason doesn't really want to take the money, but he really, he does. He ends up taking the money and doing this guy's bidding, even though he doesn't trust him and he doesn't feel safe with him. And um, he also has struggles a lot with his own tendency towards violence, which I think is another aspect of the book that is particularly fascinating. Um, But anyway, in the course of the book, Jason kind of hooks up with the guy who's uh, hired him, whose name is Michael, Michael's, I guess, girl, whose name is Syndra. 
And Ash Parsons wrote a really great post for Teen Librarian Toolbox about kids who don't triumph over abuse or they don't triumph over um, rape, but that they just outlast it and they survive it. And both Syndra and Jason are good examples of that. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't win. They just are able to finally get away. And that that narrative is so important. And that's definitely in still waters. You see how that narrative matters. And um, we, we often don't get justice when we're talking about children being exploited and abused and harmed. And so um, anyway, so he and Syndra have this relationship and he can't really tell. He's never been with a girl, but he's so... You know, the, the intoxication of somebody liking you and wanting to be physical with you and touching you is clear. Um, and so he succumbs to that against his better nature. But then he you can kind of see her vulnerability in it, too. But they don't they can't really exist because they're both being manipulated by this other boy. Mm-hmm. And um, and so he can't trust her and he can't trust himself. He can't trust this Michael guy, obviously. And so it's like there's no space for this to happen. There, there's no, not enough oxygen in the, in the relationship to, to make it happen because the, these people are broken and desperate. And it doesn't matter, you know, that they get on well physically or that they like each other because the circumstances will not allow it. And it's a really good book for a lot of other reasons, but that is, I think, a kind of illicit relationship that um, it, it's just one that can't be held in the public that these kids live in. And it's a, it's a great book. I really recommend yeah, it. Yeah. We, all of our books this week were super good. I'm very excited yeah. about this. Um, okay. I think we should probably wrap this up, huh? Right. Um, yeah. Next month, we're going to go a little bit into the weeds and we're going to um, try and do maybe something different, which is, uh, will be like a holiday special. Um, so we'll talk about books that we read as teens um, that helped us develop our thoughts and feelings about sexuality um, and basically made us the filthy and candid co-hosts that the <laughs> that at least three of you have grown to love. <laughs> it should be really exciting. Yeah, It'll yeah. be uh, packed with uh, recommendations and we hope you like it. So... Let us know in the meantime if you have any viewpoints on illicit relationships that we didn't cover. Um, we'd love to get your listener feedback and your questions. You can leave them on the Booklist Reader site. You can leave them on our website, www.theoralhistorypodcast.com, or you can send us book recommendations and responses to our email, feedback at theoralhistorypodcast.com. We've got some really great um, book recommendations via email. I'm really happy to talk to anyone about books. So don't feel shy about yeah, that at all. And we love hearing recommendations for sure. So please let us know those. Um, and you can listen to the shows and su- subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or leave us a comment. Yes. And when you review us in iTunes, it helps people find the show, makes us feel important. I never have anything bad to say about that. <laughs> okay. And we'd like to thank our our sponsor, the Booklist Reader. Um, I'm not going to do that whole thing because you already did it up at the front. So we just know that we love you, Booklist Reader. Thank you for sponsoring us. Um, yeah, that's it. And we should also thank Andrew Carr. For doing all of our technical stuff. Yes. So it sounds good because Andrew Carr is super helpful that way. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Carr. <laughs> so until next time, remember sex and books are two things that are better when you talk about them. Bye. Goodbye.